Welcome to episode 546, which is a best of episode. It's a replay of an episode I originally recorded in 2013, and it's uh, it's one of my favorites. As I mentioned last week, we'll be back with new episodes in August. Um, our sponsor, as always, for this week is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Uh, if you're interested, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental Fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor that they think is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. You need to be over 18. If you're not, they'll send you to teencounseling.com, and then you can get the ball rolling on the paperwork to uh, find a counselor there. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you don't, just please don't tell anybody. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) I'm here with my buddy, Jamie Franzo, who I've known for how many years? About six years? Something like that? More like eight. Eight? Um, You're one of my favorite people in the the universe. When you you walk into a room, I feel better. Um, I just, you're just one of those people that I've just always felt a connection to. Um, I'll describe Jamie to you physically. He he's about what six three. Used to be about six two. I'm about six one and a half now after multiple surgeries. You seem like you're six three. Uh, he used to be a uh, K one kickboxer. He works out. He's got a scar running from his forehead down to his chin. And he, he's got tattoos, almost no body fat, and he has worked security for a number of years. If, so, if somebody said to me, you're going to be attacked and you can pick three people to be on your side, I would say, Jamie, Jamie, and Jamie. <laughs> uh-huh. I just feel safer when you're, when you're around. Um, not that I'm afraid people are going to attack me, but there's just, I don't know, there's something great about having a, a badass be your buddy. What a solid thing, what a solid thing to say. Thank you. Jamie makes his living doing voiceover work, uh, sometimes doing security. Um, but more importantly, he is a sober guy that used to enjoy putting heroin into his body. Yeah. How many times do you think you've shot up? Oh, wow. 
Well, I was a junkie for more than a decade, and uh, so let's see, uh, that's 3,600 days, and sometimes you have to fix eight or ten times just to stay well. So, uh, so more than a dozen. More, <laughs> safely, <laughs> safely said, yeah. How are your arms not all fucked up? I have some um, two or three. Um, they look like cigarette burns on the inside of my arms from uh, abscesses, infections from um, the tip of a needle being uh, infected with some bacteria or another. I'm lucky not to have caught uh, anything more serious than that, like hep C. I was just speaking to a friend of mine who's undergoing um, interferon treatment for the third time. Mm. And it's just hellish. So uh, usually a strong bacterial will kill, a, a strong uh, antibiotic will kill um, the infection that comes with the abscess from behind shooting. junkies up. need a mom that runs in and, and hands out handy wipes before they shoot up. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> don't, don't want her around at that point. Mom, can you meet me at the shooting gallery? I think that some of the needles there are dirty. With some alcohol swabs. Yeah. What did, what, um, we'll, we'll get into the early stuff in your, in your life, but just give me a snapshot of the lowest low of your using. I'm sure there were many. Mm, yeah, there's, there's many. Uh, most recently, uh, this was, um, well, we knew each other, so, and I had had a little over a year clean and sober, and then I relapsed, uh, chose to use, people like to say slip, or I uh, wasn't maintaining my, uh, what I know is, is what keeps me sober, and uh, went out and within five or six weeks i was guarding the entryway of a two-man tent on gladys and seventh which is a block from skid row downtown la for a gentleman uh with one leg in his 70s named rabbit who got <laughs> the best uh heroin delivered to him by some um i won't mention the name of the mexican uh, gang that would deliver him his bundles in the morning of heroin balloons that he would sell from the tent doorway. And I would be just, just 10 feet away against a chain link fence, making sure that he was, uh, his business was running smoothly and no one was trying to rob him. And then every few hours he would give me what I needed to get through the next few hours. And, uh, I was sleeping next to that, um, for lack of a better way to explain it, creature, noisy creature each night. It's not, you don't get much sleep down there in that uh, neighborhood, but, and I was really happy. That was bliss, not having to work or do my own, you know, normal hustle other than, uh, keep an eye on, out on him. He was, he was an interesting character. Like most junkies, very sensitive, you know, wonderful story his uh he he he's, was never boring 
but that that was a pretty low time uh more than a number of times in the six or eight weeks that i was down there i i, I hear that story and i say you can be a junkie and still hold down a job yes yes and uh and live at your work but uh no but i ran into a number of people talk about shame embarrassment there's really not a word in our language for it when you someone that you've worked with you know is coming down to score a little crack and heroin and and uh you both just kind of give each other that look you know and uh it's pretty bad you'd be surprised you'd be surprised but uh I don't know. I don't know that you would be surprised. You've kind of seen it all with me, but um, yeah, we really thought you were going to die. We really did, um, and it was that classic thing where it doesn't matter how many people love you. When you decide that you want to go numb, you decide you want to go mm. numb, and and we knew to not take it personally. Uh, we just. We were just praying that that you got tired of it before you died, and thank God you you did. Well, I can remember during that particular time, I had gotten tired of a number of things, and that's anybody that I knew from my family to um, some of the men I got very close to in our fellowship, uh, my girlfriend at the time, not really a girlfriend, just kind of a relationship of convenience, um, It was an interesting time because I had grown absolutely tired of the attempt to manipulate anything or anyone anymore. That was, but I had given up. It's a lot of work staying high. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't that I ran out of you know a, a, a couch to crash on or a, a twenty dollar bill I could borrow from somebody. I just didn't have the um, whatever it took to to ask anymore, and. Um, yeah, your hustle, uh, it, uh, you start to lose it. You start to lose the, um, people refer to as the will to live. I mean, there was, there, there's, I think unconsciously for me, I mean, I wanted to survive. I desperately wanted to live. I just didn't know how. I just didn't know how. I remember looking at, uh, people that, all throughout my my addiction, looking at people early in the morning when I'm still out, you know, getting ready, you know, they're they've shaved and they've bathed and they've eaten and they've they're getting into their car with their briefcase and I would think, sucker, you know, <laughs> what kind of life in that is that, and then think how uh, later on how um, it's beautiful when I see people uh, when I hear the hustle and bustle in the morning. I was sitting on my balcony this morning and and. Uh, I'm up early. I'm up, you know, 5.15, 5.30. It's dark still. Having coffee on the balcony. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's I'm, I, t Today, I'm anxious to greet what's coming when I wake up in the morning. That's such a far cry from the way it used to be. Let's, let's go back to the beginning and, and talk about maybe some of the stuff that made you want to get high who knows i mean maybe genetically you and i were just born to to get fucked up no matter how good our lives were but almost any addict or alcoholic or any person that does something super compulsively to numb out there's there's something from their from their past usually that that 
if if not is the reason is certainly gasoline on the fire for mm. for that you uh you were born in Brooklyn and then you moved to San Francisco yeah very early on my family moved to I was two moved to um the San Francisco Bay Area my dad got a job he did foundation work for large construction companies he got a job doing the uh foundation for the federal building in San Francisco so that was a big uh big opportunity big promotion for him and we uh he actually moved us to San Mateo about 15 miles south of there to a hotel called the Casa Mateo and uh i think it was $9 a night back in 64 wasn't a bad place uh wasn't the best place i've stayed but uh it was it was sweet it was no rabbit tent no absolutely not no, I, I come from a, a very loving home. I, I never wanted for anything. I certainly had uh, love and nurturing. And uh, my parents just recently celebrated 60 years of marriage in April of last year. They, uh, it's, um, And I've heard this from so many sources that I think it's the consensus that it's a joy to be around them. They, um, they love each other warmly and, and thoroughly and out loud and... You know, they're the, the boisterous Italian, real thick Brooklyn accent still, both of them many, many years out of the heart of Bensonhurst, but uh, you wouldn't know it. And uh, yeah, so that's where I was born. Um, and your dad is definitely an alpha male. Yeah, my dad is is, is that. My dad, I, I was just thinking of his hands when we were talking. He's He's got... Uh, a layer of callus. He's in his 80s now, early 80s, and he's got a layer of callus from uh, construction work. It's just hard work. He's just a, a hard-working guy. I mean, never cheated on his taxes. I've never caught my, my dad embellishing the truth, let, let alone telling a lie. Um, he, uh, interesting guy, disciplinarian. So... As far as the, um, the connecting it to, you know, later on the addiction, I think my first addiction, I used to say it was food because I was a very fat kid. Um, today they refer to as clinically obese. I give you a visual. I was, uh, 250 pounds at 13 with about a 55 inch waist. Um, so I could only wear bib overalls with the buttons undone, rolled up, adult as a 13 year old. To be fair, you were 16 feet tall, though. No, no, it's not 16 feet tall. No, I have. Uh, I used to say that that was my first addiction. Food It's the first one I remembered. But looking back now, I think my first addiction was attention, any kind of attention. And I got a lot in my home. I had an older brother, and I had uh, a grandmother that lived in the house. You know, who told me I was the best boy, the smartest boy, and the most handsome boy, and. Um, I love that. And uh was it just you and your brother? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then uh, at at when I was 13 and a half, my brother was on a full ride scholarship to uh play football at Cal Berkeley and um he also was a straight A student, the polar opposite of me in this it character wise in the sense that he was, you know, quiet, introspective um and he got in a motorcycle wreck and three days later passed after a couple of um, surgeries on his 
brain to relieve the swelling and a bad, bad head in, head injury. And um, months before that, I had uh, endured a trauma that um, you know about because we've talked about it at length. And what, what I've come to learn about that particular trauma is it's really um, not close to the worst of what I've experienced in people I've been in treatment with for post-traumatic stress. And, uh, and I've also learned, I think that trauma is relative. Mine was the, I think the very first time that I can identify when I chose to begin to play a victim, when I chose to separate myself from certainly my peers, but the human race as someone who has gone through more pain and, and darkness. Jamie, how could you not? Do you mind recounting? Uh, I don't mind. I'm going to just kind of glaze over it and share in a general way. I was uh, walking a dog for my for my uh, a family friend, um, a black lab named Benji. And I, like as I said, I was you know I was awkward. I was fat. I wore wore um, horn rim glasses with tape on the in the center because they would break a lot and. I was restricted to what I could wear, and uh, I was a goofy kid, loud, and I didn't have a lot of friends. So Benji was my Benjamin was the dog's name. Benji was my 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 friend, my confidant. I loved this dog. It's it's tough to. I know there's some some of your audience out there that understands the love of an animal, but because I didn't have much else, you know, other than my family, then this dog was just there was something that we had a very unique relationship this dog seemed to have known i was coming because he was excited to see me i to this day wish people could greet as enthusiastically as that dog would greet when i would come to pick him up and that was five days a week i'd walk him for an hour or two sometimes it would be four or five because until it got dark i uh, always lost track of time we'd go to san francisco central park and san francisco central park is beautiful and um and very large. It's big and spread out. And there are areas, there was an area they were building. It was a sunken atrium that had tiers and it was under construction. And there was a group of, I won't name the bike gang because, uh, I just won't name the bike gang. Um, pretty, uh, pretty rough characters. And they were, uh, later, come later to find out they were on, um, Angel Dust or PCP, which uh, is a hallucinogen, and um, they, uh, but the dog got off the leash and went into their group, and they heard it pretty bad, and I heard him yelp and came back to me with a limp, and really at that point, um, I just saw red, and I got the dog home, which was only a few blocks away, and I came back, and there were uh, maybe a football field's distance from where the bike gang was hanging out. Their motorcycles were were parked, and I say motorcycles roughly. These were like a ragtag group of you know pieces and parts, and but you know to that kind of a character, that's their pride and joy, that's their prized possession. And I had gra- had snatched a bottle of um, lighter fluid from the from the uh, barbecue on my way out in a couple of, you know, strike a surface matches and poured the contents of it on the, on the bikes and lit the bikes on fire. And they were in the bar at this point or something? no, no, they were right in that, in that atrium area that was being uh, built in central park about a hundred yards from the street where the bikes were. 
Okay. And I was standing by the bikes. I backed up to get out, you know, from the heat of the flames. But then what happened was the um, gas tanks at different degrees of full or, or empty were blowing up like the 4th of July explosions, loud explosions. And, you know, they all stood up and turned around and I'm, I'm 10 feet from the bike celebrating. And, you know, they wasn't too hard to connect me with the dog that they had hurt. And, um, so I ran across the street and by the time they got, got up, I was around the next corner and, and, and hiding out, but someone must've saw where I was and where I went. And, and hours later they, they grabbed me in a Ford van on an Econo line van. Um, and they took me to their campsite, which, uh, kind of their hideout about 30 miles away in, uh, the Sequoia mountains. And it was a known hangout for these guys on the way out there in the back of this van. I was tied up. Um, uh, I think I was, my hands were tied with a ripped t-shirt and, uh, they stuck a, a rubber ball in my mouth and, uh, I had kicked the back swinging door open and a woman saw that there was what she reported was a young woman, uh, being abducted and got the license plate number. Now, Three days later, they traced the license plate of the van to the father of one of the girls who was known to date, mm. have a boyfriend that was in this bike gang. So that was kind of miraculous that I, I found out later. But in that three days, um, bound to a tree, uh, some unspeakable things were uh, done to my body. Um uh, lots of stitches, lots of broken bones, um, attempts to, now these were d drug induced hysterical, uh, kind of lawless characters that, um, were challenging each other to do certain things. And, um, you know, looking back, I played a part in it because I was certainly challenging them as well, you know? I was, you know, get me out of here, get me off this this tree. My brother's going to come for you. My, you know, my family's going to come for you. I, I'm never going to forget your face. Uh, Weren't you afraid they were going to kill you? First of all, um, if I was, I wasn't recognized. It didn't. It didn't silence me. It didn't calm me. Um, I was petrified. I mean, I was. Um, I today connect fear with almost with paralyzation, with fear, with um, being being unable to move, crippled. Um, and I didn't shut up for the first twenty four hours. I think that I was, uh, I, I and I, I was able to, you know, call them back. I I I remember this, um, unfortunately, like it was yesterday. And you learn a lot in 72 hours bound to a tree about human nature. You learn a lot about there were characters that I could talk back by appealing to their emotions. You don't want to do this. You know, I have a family. I'm 13. You know, this is this is horrible. You know, please, please. And then that doesn't work with certain characters. So you you go at their ego. I mean, I'm able to put that, to connect those dots today. Wow. 
And, uh, you know, I can remember the first night the, the, how, how, how horrifying the leaves cracking, dry leaves cracking, because they had, you know, some of them passed out and some of them had left the campsite. And I can remember not knowing if it was a, a wild animal, because there are mountain lions, there are bears in the California sequoias, um, badgers. Who knows what what it was? I can remember how petrified I was, and then the change a night later. I'm now hungry. I've called my voice out. I can't. I can't. There's nothing audibly that will come out. I'm struggling to breathe because of the damage done to my ribs and my sternum and my jaw and my neck and my eyes are swollen shut with blood dried in them and one of my nostrils is closed because of blood dried in it and big change. You hear the crackling of the leaves and it's not, not what you're afraid of anymore. So I remember I was alone on the third morning and it was... Uh, dawn and uh, the warmth of the sun coming through the trees felt good on my skin I hadn't lost hope and I heard my name and I heard my name not by a familiar voice I heard my name by a stranger my first and last name and the next thing I knew there was it it seemed like that was way off in the distance. And then it seemed like seconds later, there was someone unbounding me from the tree. And it was a, what I later found out was a ranger, a forest ranger um, from that particular, the closest park around there. And then um, I was... What are you feeling right now? You and I have talked about this before. Um, I have talked about this a number of times in session with a therapist, um, in sharing with other friends of mine that are have s- similar survivors of trauma. And on my way here, thirty minutes ago, I was I was telling myself I was giving myself parameters of how deep I was going to go and I wasn't planning to go that deep and I'm comfortable with this I don't feel uncomfortable I feel like um, I feel a level of healing that I've never experienced before because I almost feel like I'm I'm telling you about um, something that I witnessed rather than something that I endured because the Gone are the the feelings of um, that's what I feel like kind of a um, a fullness in my acceptance that really my body was abused, but they couldn't touch the best parts of me, nor can anybody on this day touch the best parts of me. That's something that you volunteer. That's, I think, the beauty in the um, truth that was shared to me with other victims. And I only use that as a, a word in the vernacular that it's you're, you, yeah. you have a perpetrator and a victim. 
um, that 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 the damage that is is done, the permanent damage that's 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 done. They're really it's your choice in what you allow to be permanently damaged. And what I've realized is that I that how many times that my story, this story, has actually helped another human being in really just letting them know they're not alone. Although a totally different set of circumstances in the trauma that the confusion and the, and the swirling, because this is unnatural what happened to me um, as far as my scope of what's natural. Uh, so what, I, what do I feel? I feel, um, I feel grateful. I feel grateful. I remember that I remember what I feel when I heard my name. What did you feel? I felt like I'm saved. I'm going home. I felt something like that uh, in our fellowship early on too. You know. So. How about those 49ers? <laughs> <laughs> the feeling, obviously I've never experienced anything even close to, to that, but I have experienced what you talk about when I realize that there is hope and that my life isn't lost and that other people are there for me and recognize what I'm feeling and experiencing. And that feeling of being rescued is amazing. But to get to that place, you have to say, please help me. <laughs> That's so hard if you haven't been taught how to do that or you didn't have role models that asked for help. It's really powerful what you just said. I I, I find myself, um, I've become um, hypersensitive of late. I'm I'm restudying with my mate, my girlfriend, in the morning, um, this study book for the power of now, and you know, recognizing my thoughts and recognizing my mind and the negative self talk, really, and just the truth that I'm not my mind. And you'd be surprised how many times that I say in the course of a day, I don't have the answers. I need your help. And I'm speaking now to my higher power. Um, two hours ago, my girl and I, I, I was saying before this interview, you know, we're, we're moving. She has incredible stresses at work. And this has been an ongoing thing. We're. Uh, I have my my set of um, things that are causing me stress right now, and we've been going through a tough time. Um, the good news is we we stick out tough times. We've had a number of them, and we know we're in a on a on a downswing right now, but we're sticking it out. And I was saying goodbye to her to get myself together to come see you, and. Uh, it just was an awkward, uncomfortable moment, and I was. She stopped the car. She said, 
honey, come back to the car. I went back to the car and I really want to make her pay for my, the emotional state, the frustrations that I've had today. And I see that face and I see those eyes and I'm looking at her and I said that to, to my God. I said, I, please, I don't have the answers here. And I need your help because I want to be loving. And when I go to that that reservoir of you know reach into something, there's nothing there presently because I'm, you know, I'm um, and it's no longer okay for me to have that excuse. But it's it's been shown to me, and it's been my practice and my experience that it's okay to ask for help. And in that moment, I got what I needed. And I think that it was facilitated with this big smile that came across her face. Because just in that few seconds that I didn't make her in any way pay for my emotional state, make her responsible for my emotional state, she found whatever it, it, it took. Her smile made me laugh really at myself because uh, I mean, I have so much to be grateful for and an incredible forgetter, you know? And then, you know, her smile, my laugh, next thing I know, I'm going around the other side of the car to uh, to put this half of this large body in her front window so I could squeeze her and give her a kiss properly goodbye and really uh, yeah save the day and you touched on something that I think is so central to anybody that enjoys this this podcast and gets something out of it and that ties us all together is that in that moment you felt overwhelmed, mm. emotionally overwhelmed. Mm. And you, your first instinct is to go to that first tool that we learned when we were kids or teens or even babies, which is to just lash out, to let that steam out. Because mm. there is a certain primitive kind of release in lashing out. Mm. But it's so unmanageable because it creates so much wreckage. And then the other person's on the defensive, and then we can't connect with them. And then this person I'm, we're sharing our lives with is in one corner, and we're in the other corner, and we've turned it into "I win, you lose." Uh, you know how how much sense does that make with somebody that you're trying to build a life with, that you are going to have sex with at some point in the future? that you are thinking of yourself as a victor and them as a the vanquished. Mm. It, and for so many years, that was my mentality. Was It was about being right and winning, and it just eats at the foundation of a relationship to come at it from that point of view. But when you don't have any other tools and you feel overwhelmed mm. and you're a sensitive, you know, hypersensitive person... You don't know what else to do because it's so overwhelming when you feel cornered or you're so full of fear about the rest of your life. And then this, them leaving the dishwasher door open is the final straw, you know, or something ridiculous. Last night when we talked briefly and you had asked me about um, my fear list. My biggest fear when I'm in that overwhelming moment is that, and it's my smallest fear, and it's the fear that affects all the areas of my life. Um, I used to to playfully say it's the under the heading 
don't you know who the think I through the hell I think I am. So in other words, um, a false sense of myself. Um, but it's the fear of not being recognized. It's the fear of not being, um, having the proper amount of praise in a given moment, you know, um, had a long discussion with a dear friend of mine who is, um, on the downslope of uh, celebrity status. And where we were relating, I was in the nightclub business. I was in and around it for 25, nearly 30 years from San Francisco nightclub door jobs and New York door jobs to parlaying all of that into a um, nightclub partnership in South Beach, Miami in the early 90s. And the position, the power that it, it garnered me, um, the celebrity, if you will, this microcosm of, of South Beach, Miami and the nightclub world to have, to be the partner in the, the spot for four or five years. It's, you're basically the God king of your world. So, you have to recover from that when that fades into darkness. Especially if you've made that who you are. I'm not, In your mind, yeah. if that's, this is, this is the most important thing about me. Mm. If you decide to let that be the most important thing about you at that time. I, I think that, because I've put, put a lot of energy into trying to figure this out, I can't really come up with a time or a, a period of uh, or a time frame where I made a conscious choice to be that guy. I can say that when you're working the door of a place and you've earned the trust of the owners and they say, "Hey, we're going to we're gonna, this season we're going to go out of town a lot more because our primary home is New York. We might like to make you a partner, and your ten percent in six months becomes fifteen, and then twenty five. And then they're interested in doing a place with you. And now you have this place where you're full partners, um, incredibly successful. I won't take any credit for that. It was all timing. Uh, we had a formula that had worked other places, but it was really South Beach was exploding and you could open a hot dog stand and do very well. It was like riding a wave. So, and there was a seduction in the, oh, your money's no good over here. Oh, you, you, you know, table and bottle service and things on the house, other places that you go, jet ski rentals on the beach, whatever. It's because you, you're this person. Everybody wants to say they know you. There's, um, I don't know what choices you make to become that guy. I, uh, I enjoyed it. I, I, I worked it. Um, my my the depths of my my disease and my uh my addiction my heroin addiction my cocaine addiction is what snatched that opportunity from me which i burnt it to the ground i burnt the trust down to the ground from those two partners that were like family to me my partner's wife was like my second mom um it's 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 not the way you want to go out with your tail between your legs so, and I've, uh, 
like when you asked me what I was feeling when we were talking about something that happened to me in my early teens, um, I have this, I have a similar, um, perspective to how long it took me to recover from being nightclub guy, you know, cause I'm truly learning to appreciate just being a guy in a room. Um, we like to affectionately say a worker among workers. Uh, there's so much less um, pressure, uh, so much less expected of you, um, so much less responsibility. Um, it's exhausting to be who you think you, guy, who, who, you who you think, think you is yeah. impressive. Yeah. yeah, you know, and um, man, it's fascinating to me. We we were touching on some things earlier, and I was thinking. My father, you know, he lost his, his, my brother. My father has a son today. My mother has a son today. Um, my girlfriend has a mate that is constantly looking at ways to honor their relationship. My, uh, my friendships with men, and I count you among them, um, well, we're there for each other. Uh, I have relationships today. So I had this uh, relationship with an image of myself that took thousands to fill. And now with, with a handful of intimate relationships that are based on on truth and being a safe place for each other there's i mean i i'm i'm fuller i'm talking behind my sternum here in my chest than i have ever been i didn't know this was possible isn't that a trip that the ego needs a, a fucking roman banquet every four hours to stay sated and our soul can nibble on a crouton and be like, this is the fucking tastiest crouton in the world. <laughs> hmm. But it's so hard because we live in a society that is ego-driven, mm. that tells you success are all of these things that are attached to your ego. And it is so hard to unlearn them. It is so hard. In that decade that I was um, trying to stay well, and running from everything that uh, fed my soul, I left. Staying well is a is a term that heroin users use, meaning you don't even get high anymore. You just shoot up to not feel withdrawal. For those of listeners that aren't hip to that uh, kind of lingo. I had walked out on my sons, three and six years old, um, in my coming up on um, five years of clean and sober time with a year and change before that. I've had them both back in my life, um, building trust again and building a relationship for the better part of seven years. So we're, uh, we got a pretty good thing going, me and my boys. My oldest and I have, uh, 
really bonded this last month behind a number of circumstances traumatic for him. Um, The loss of a girlfriend uh, right before that, the loss of their child uh, because of complications in her pregnancy, her moving out of town. And uh, he called me the other day to get some information from me, get some direction, get some advice on somebody that he's newly enamored with. And uh, to to be a go-to person for that 22-year-old young man, that my opinion, number one, that he he's... It's, it's part of what he uses to make decisions that he, um, and he said this in, in, in directly to me and he's shown me in many ways that I need your perspective. I need your input here before I make this big decision. I want to get your take on it. Um, it was just a couple words that we shared. I gave him, uh, I was checking in with something that he was going to, uh, to, um, attempt. It worked out well. Uh, in brief, he thought he made her feel uncomfortable. He was just going to brush it under the rug and and hope that it went away. I said, "I want you to call her. I want you to, you know, have a a, a short conversation and make sure she understands if you made her uncomfortable that you didn't mean to, and uh, you know, just clean it up." And it went real well. And and uh, we got off the phone, and I and I th- I saw his, his face in my mind's eye. And I, I thought to myself, I'm the richest man in the world to have the opportunity to have a meaning and a purpose in this young man's life, who happens to be my son. Um, and it's rare that it, that's not attached to unhealthily on my part attached to not feeling deserving of it could you describe 10 years ago when that son would have been 12 years old what he thought of you well we had um we've had a number of conversations about that um it was horrifying to my son at times you know he felt like he was uh alone in the world you know (laughs) i'll never forget the night you hadn't seen your sons in how how many years was it? You were newly sober at this point. I hadn't actually seen them in nine and a half years. Jamie and I and a group of other people, the support group that we go to, we eat dinner at this place next to where the support group is. And Jamie hadn't seen his my son. Young, my youngest boy, Chris. In nine years, and Jamie and myself and a couple other people are sitting down at this place, and your son walks in with mm. your, with his stepdad and mom to eat. Can you can you talk about that? <sighs> Pure coincidence. Their stepdad, um, mom actually was uh, around the corner in the car where they were picking up food to go at a place that we sit and eat at. And um, they had called it in. So 
they were walking in and walking towards the counter and I recognized their stepdad who um, I've had some interesting encounters with in the past and the last of which was very ugly. Um, and when I initially saw him because of the last time I had seen him was many years earlier, it wasn't good. I, I you know, I kind of bowed up full of nerves prepared for anything to go down and um taller than him and right behind him was this large baby-faced 14-year-old boy who looked like me when I was young and I was darting back between the two of them and and um Chris my son had a big smile on his face and Zav had a very soft um greeting for me he just said hey man how are you and I, you know, said the obligatory, I'm, I'm okay. And he said, you want to say hello to your boy? And I said, hey, Chris. And he goes, hey. And I said, let's step outside. And we went outside. And, and um, I don't remember what was said, but I remember how hard he was working to calm me down in a, in a good way. Like, he was excited to see me. And... um what took place over the next 10 minutes, he, he, uh, at one point I was, you know, I was babbling. I, I, you know, I hadn't, I wouldn't, I didn't know where they lived. I couldn't find them. Um, was court ordered to stay away from them. That court order had lapsed. I hadn't done the proper, the necessary court protocols to be allowed to see my children, but I had, I found out shortly after I was allowed to see them. I, uh, he said, hey, Dad, chill, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, I think there's somebody that I'm going to want to call. So he took my cell phone and he called my oldest son. And he said, I remember it like it was, I remember it verbatim. He said, you never guess who I'm sitting here talking to. And I could hear my oldest boy on the, on the phone right there. It was right close to me where I could hear it. He said, Jimmy? And he said, yeah because some of my friends and old school friends refer to me as Jimmy. And he said, where are you guys? And he said, where we were. And he said, invite him to my football game Friday night. As you know, our meeting is on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next night I was at North Hollywood High School Huskies Friday Night Lights, and my oldest boy was playing the position I played in high school football as a team captain. And I got to sit there and watch him. And we uh, hung out for a couple of hours afterward. And that was the beginning of our long, arduous, very productive, painstaking uh, journey in putting back together something that I thought was forever shattered. And that's what I, I hope anybody listening to this who thinks... I've fucking blown it. You know, I've... All hope is lost. Mm. I, th I, I think our attitude about things probably snuffs out more hope than anything else. And if we just keep taking the next right indicated loving, honest action, the universe has a really weird way of meeting us halfway. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I've probably heard that said, and you actually say that combination of words in that last sentence you just said a number of times, and I, it just gave me goosebumps that started in my chest and went down my, over my shoulder blades. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I don't want to take. I don't want to take credit for for any of this. I think that this um, universe that you talk to, talk about, refer to, I I call um, God, and um, I'm where I'm at in so many areas of my life, all the areas of my life, but especially with my relationships with my son, um, as much from the grace of that power as I am from. Um, the the really the most powerful thing I've ever done was as we talked about earlier, ask another man for help. Ask for help. My my first uh, cry for help was to to God to the universe. Just help me. It was brief. Help me. My prayers are consistent and they're in the morning, and they've expounded and expanded to um, more than just help me, but. Me too, and that's what saved me. Yeah. Was July twenty first, two thousand and three. I was tired of wanting to die, and I just said out loud, "God help me, I can't do this anymore." And my life changed. And and I sometimes call it God too, but I I also know that there are people that listen to this podcast that the word God has been really, really tainted for them by bad experiences with either organized religion or somebody in a position of power that talked about God a lot that abused their trust. And so um, I probably edge away from it more than I, than I should if I'm going to be really honest with myself. But I want this podcast... I, I hate the thought of somebody turning it off unnecessarily. And so I... I don't call it God as much as I should, even though I can't wrap my head around the fact that there would be a an entity with that hears what I'm saying and consciously processes it because it has to kind of work with science for me to to get it. But I, but I call it God. I call it God. I believe in God. For me personally, um, when I think of not the. Um exaggerated um, not the printed not the sculpture in a Catholic or any other church of Christ on a cross but the actual man on the planet for 32 years and his the example of his life that's a pretty good example of service it's a pretty good example of selflessness and sacrifice and as that is the example I'm a follower of Christ because in this moment, in this day, my top three things that I'm trying to be uh, more of is gentle, kind, and selfless. So that's still a pretty good example for me. Now, it's not a... Um, it's not anything that, and I believe this about God and faith, that should separate me from anything or anyone. I think it should be all-inclusive, you know? I have a totally different take on um, 
the the structure you know the the pomp and circumstance of what i was raised in it's just become so much deeper and wider today and um and i like it i'm comfortable with it and i and i think the most important thing is the seeking you know we'll never know all the answers you know and, and i'm always wary of any person you know who says yeah you know I believe in God, and then somebody says, well, then why does this happen? And they have just pat answers for this. Why are they afraid to say, I don't know? And somebody said one time, if God was small enough for me to understand, God wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems mm. or give me comfort. And and I like to think of that. And I suppose sometimes I'm, I, I can be that person because maybe there's an instinct in me that wants other people to know that there is this power in the universe that I tapped into that saved my life and that is other people like you who have tapped into and it saved your life. And we don't know exactly how it works and operates and what form it takes, et cetera, et cetera. But we know that there are places where we can show up and actions we can take where then we get that feeling that it is there. And that feeling is so deep and so profound. I feel it in my bones. It's the deepest truth that I know. Um, but you can't make somebody else understand that. You can't get there intellectually. And maybe that's the, the, the gift of a bottom is the intellect is forced to lay down. It's spent. And, and then, your spirit is allowed for once to lead. Because I, I believe the spirit doesn't lead the body and the mind wither and they, and they want to die. I think the spirit has to lead. Our, our, all our decisions have to be filtered through some type of a spiritual discipline. Um, otherwise, I, I just think we become, we become lost and scared and, I mean, we we become scared regardless, but we become driven by, I believe, that that fear. That becomes the kind of the master that we serve. Because mm. I, I think everybody, but Bob Dylan wrote a song, everybody's got to worship something. And I, and I believe it. I believe everybody has a, has a God. They just don't know it. It might be being attractive. It might be being rich, you know, getting your dad's approval, you know, what, whatever. But uh, I, I think the beauty in running your life off the rails and asking for help is you're forced to really look at what your God has been and go, is this working for me? Is worshiping this thing working for me? Is worshiping heroin and being a Mr. Nightclub mm. working for me? Interesting. Actually, fascinating perspective that you just shared. I, I just it was able to help me to connect some dots because I think what I worshipped um, was what I thought would be because I had worked so hard at separating myself from the pack. And what I became was an animal. I became, I became chaos. And that's one thing you could count on me, with me consistently, in New York and Miami. That there's no rules, you know. 
nothing is going to surprise you to hear that story the next day. And not having any boundaries was what I, that was my aspiration every day. Not to not have a game plan. And the great danger too, you know, the ego has to separate us from our fellow. Mm. We're either better than or we're worse than. That that's the only the the ego cannot conceive of being one of many. That is just the ego hates that. And when we're living in ego and we're either in self pity because we think we're worse than everybody or we're in grandiosity because we think we're better than other people. You're bound to feel lonely. You know, for years, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian apart from other stand-up comedians. And I couldn't understand why I felt so lonely. Mm. Well, my pursuit was to distance myself from everybody. And I didn't even achieve what my ego wanted financially or professionally but i achieved it spiritually by separating myself from from other people hmm. and it didn't occur to me until i'd been sober about six years it was oh my god my fear is that i'm not special that my life is forgettable if i can overcome that fear and be comfortable with being one of many my life can has a chance to, to take on meaning and the odd thing is is one of the byproducts of that has been that I do get to feel special because I get to connect to people but it's a different kind of special it's it's not getting in TV guide special it's laying my head on my pillow at night and feeling that I have a purpose special mm. which my ego does not care for it's interesting that you, you, you're this morning again with my girl with that reading, another reading. She, there's, I'm reminded often of why I'm with her and why I don't ever want to lose her is because she's, she will say something i've heard before oftentimes but in a certain cadence or a certain rhythm or a certain it's something connects for me when it's coming out of her mouth and we were talking about the ego this morning and you touched on that this ego that lives within me will never be satisfied will and and there was a in the quest to feed it, the next, oh, oh, just the, <laughs> I, the, 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 carniv the, the carnivore of it. That leads to death because even I'm not feeding my spirit. I'm, I'm feeding some, some, some darkness because mm -hmm. my body was breaking down. My, I was losing my mind in the feeding of this ego and what's happening now and that's there there 
what one-on-one back in the day when I was feeding my ego as my soul quest, one-on-one, what that person thought of me was how I would choose to behave in a given moment. Mm-hmm. When I was standing in, in the DJ booth with 1,200 people pulsating to trance music, I was, you know, the, the, that, that animal, what they're going to think and feel, what I'm feeding them, what, the, what I'm getting back from them, what I'm really consuming at that moment, okay, is only deadened and beautifully deadened by what you said when you put your head on your pillow. Today, it's what did I do that was an esteemable act? And that might be something as simple as using my turn signal consistently, pushing the cart back, um, choosing to in a number of different areas in my life, not be the guy in the room, not the only guy in the room, not have an attitude with a checkout person, um, It's, allow allow people to be human and make mistakes. That that the choice of what you're going to feed, that's where um, I think meaning and purpose and a real sense of I really hesitate to use this word because it's such a danger zone for me. But a real sense of control. There's in the proper, oftentimes most difficult choice. There's I'm I'm limiting the options of uncomfortability because you know what if i choose to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do and not because of any uh, perceived payoff what happens is at the end of a day when it's time to put my head down on the pillow oftentimes it'll hit me you know in the afternoon well it's been a good day you know it's not that anything was was done it's not that anybody witnessed me do anything wonderful it's not that it's just kind of like i'm okay with with what happened today you know i'm okay with raising the bar in certain areas and and, and there seems to be a trade-off too you know the things that the ego likes are usually things that are exciting and instantaneous Hmm. and the things that the soul likes i think oftentimes take patience Involve subtlety, and and I, I think involve faith and trust sometimes, and that doesn't that's that's 180 degrees from guys like you and me that are wired uh, for I want it yesterday. Where the fuck is it? Where's mine? <laughs> don't you know who I am? Mm. Or don't you know who I think I am? But the fact that that the fact that you are not only alive, but you're flourishing. That to me is proof that there's got to be a god or something. I mean, the shit that you've been through, Jamie. Mm. Yeah, you're a fucking miracle that you are still alive. I'm sure that they said when when insulin came into the medical practice that it was the miracle drug. That penicillin at one point was the miracle drug that to some cancer patients, chemotherapy is the miracle drug. So that's where I, I disconnect from me being the miracle. I'm, I'm, I've, I've, 
I feel that I have experienced a deliverance, that I, f- I feel chosen, I feel picked, I feel uh, amongst many, and I'm, I'm more than satisfied with that. From Rabbit's Tent to uh, <laughs> to Polly's Living Room. Oh, I'll man. take Polly's Living Room. Well, let's let's trade a, a couple of fears. We're gonna we're gonna Miles Davis this one and uh, improvise it. Uh, I'll start. I am afraid um, that by by talking about God in this podcast, people will find it boring and will have turned off. And um, yeah, I'm afraid that. All my big score, career-wise, opportunities have passed me by. Oh, boy, do I have that one. I'm afraid that I'm never going to be able to fully stand up for advocating for myself and my needs. I'm always going to be a little bit uncomfortable asking for things that really aren't above and beyond. I'm afraid that I ask too much often. I expect far too much and um, that I make uh, a partnership, whether um, in business or romantic, um, nearly impossible. I'm afraid that I'm going to be hobbled much sooner than I think I am, that I'm actually months or several years away from um, not being able to play hockey anymore. <laughs> you went there, you bastard. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I, uh, I too. I, you, you know, because you walked through it with me, my hip replacement almost two years ago. For the past year, the last 10 months, I'm better than ever. I can do everything with my right leg, better range of motion, Similar strength. Um, and the past three or four weeks, my left hip has been talking to me. Mm. And I, f- I fear being debilitated. I'm afraid that this recent feeling of having my vigor back for life and woodworking and all the things that had kind of gone away uh, with the low-grade depression of the last couple of years, I'm afraid that this feeling is only fleeting and temporary, and I'm going to be going right back to feeling flat and uninspired again. I'm afraid that I'm going to miss time with my sons if I continue to smoke. I'm afraid that the weight gain these new meds have caused me have made me either unattractive to my wife or even more unattractive to my wife and will wind up getting divorced. I find you very attractive. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I can't count how many times in our friendship where you've said something that is a new level of 
honesty and openness and vulnerability, transparency, and you set the the bar for me so many times. So I'm reaching for um, the next level of... I fear that my girl is uh, 15 years younger than me. We both keep ourselves in good shape, but I'm 50 and she's 35. So I fear that when she's 42 and still smoking hot and I'm getting close to 60, and breaking down, I fear um, figuring out that she's too kind to let me know that she's un- not attracted to me anymore. Let's go to some loves. Thank you. Loves. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a barf bag? Um, <laughs> I love that I've just spent an hour and a half sitting here rubbing souls and the view that I have is of my backyard which is where I used to fantasize that I would put a gun in my mouth and kill myself I love that my vulnerability garners me strength every time I love that if I were to be hospitalized with some type of terminal illness, I love knowing that I would be surrounded by people who love me, people from not only my wife and and friends, but people from our fellowship, from support groups, Many people who we don't even know each other's last names, but we know intimate details of each other's lives and stories and pains and joys and loves and sorrows. And I love that I know that I would be basked in love and support and that that would comfort me no matter no matter how excruciating something I would go through. And that takes... I love that that takes that fear away, that fear of mortality away from me, that fear of what we all fear. At least temporarily it does. I suppose it comes and goes, but because I've seen it in action. You and I have both seen, you know, we lost a friend a couple of years or a couple of months ago to uh, stage four cancer and the hospital he was at it set a record for the number of visitors that's how powerful the support group is people come out of the woodwork his family was had meals brought to them they were picked up and driven to the airport and you were one of the people that were was there more than anybody else that I love that I fucking love that You were talking about your new uh, found or re-experiencing your 
enthusiasm and verve for some of the things that you do creatively, like woodworking. Um, I have an interest in sculpting and painting that I haven't gone near in 15 years. And there's a piece that I've been inspired to do based on a letter that I received two weeks ago from Bradley's mother in gratitude for um, being there for her son. Uh, I love being able to hear that. I love being able to be connected emotionally to that place that that touches and have now being be able to use that like fuel, you know? I love that gratitude is fuel for so many beautiful things. I love the feeling of making the unknown my friend and not my enemy, the future, and being excited about it. I love when I'm able to do that and say, God, I can't wait to see what's next. Instead of, oh, it's all going to be doom. It's, it's all going downhill. I love my simple life. I think that's a perfect one to end on. Jamie, I love you, buddy. I love you, Paul. Thanks, man. This was fun. Many thanks to Jamie for uh, for a great episode and just being such a such a great loving guy and such an important person in my uh, in my life. Um, before I take it out with a whole bunch of surveys. Um, I want to remind you that there's a, a couple of different ways to support the show. You can support it. Um, oh, you can support the show non-financially by going to iTunes, giving us a good rating. And that boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show. And you can also uh, help us by spreading the word through social media. That uh, that makes me very happy when I see people doing uh, doing that. I think that's about it for the announcements. I'm sure I'll think of something. And all the people that help make this show possible, of course, I want to thank. Uh, I want to thank you. You know who you are. This first survey, I've got a, a, a huge stack. I'm not going to get through all of them, but uh, I'm just going to read them until I feel either your interest waning, um, or you just becoming sick of my voice. Maybe both will happen at the same time. Kismet. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Amelia, a woman who's straight. She's in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment, was the victim of sexual abuse but never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about all the ways I can use technology to ruin the lives of the people who have hurt me. I want them to suffer. I want their relationships to be ruined. I want them to be shamed by their co-workers. I want them to learn what it's like to wish you were dead and feel like your entire existence was one big fucking mistake. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I can't really answer a question about a sexual fantasy when I hate sex and I hate being touched. Even being touched by someone who has no sexual thoughts towards me is enough to make my entire body tense up. 
Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, ha, you think I can get a partner like this? Would you want to be around someone who took every touch as a threat? Um, do these thoughts or secrets uh, generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, the gun in my closet is sometimes the only hope I have. Um, oh, I'm sorry, that was... the. The printer kind of fucked up, and I and I couldn't really le- read the line. That was to the answer of the question of um, deepest darkest secrets. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, "I feel like I have a monster living inside me that I created. I fed this monster for twenty years, and it feeds on self-loathing. It gets its kicks from watching me abuse myself, and it loves the days I walk to the cliff and look over. The monster speaks to me." when no one else does because it knows my soul is dead. I fear I'm becoming worse than the monster ever anticipated and it's all part of a cruel joke. I don't know what to say. Just sending some love your way, Amelia. I know it, it. it's hard to believe that you're not alone, but there are other people that feel that way. And there, there are people who have felt that way and then managed to not feel that way without taking their lives. Sending a big, big fat hug your way. This next one is filled up by a guy who calls himself Buzz. He's straight and he's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that's pretty dysfunctional, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm a recovering addict and I used to fantasize about suicide a lot. It's been years since I've wanted to die, but I definitely still sometimes feel like the idea of there being no afterlife is the only thing that really scares me about death. I've also had a lot of sexual thoughts about the serious girlfriends slash fiancés of my good friends. I've never allowed myself to, quote, use their images after they became my friends' wives. Boy, that is a, um, I don't know what the the, the word would be, but that that's a guy with some, some serious ethical boundaries, uh, not allowing yourself to even think about them once they're once they're married that uh man if <laughs> if i had a nickel for every inappropriate person i masturbated thinking about um we would have a new lotto <laughs> uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i fantasize about women especially colleagues making the first move i'm sexually passive deeply intimidated by attractive women and always afraid of making them uncomfortable. For some reason, I've always wanted to perform anal sex on a woman. Uh, Buzz, there doesn't have to be a reason. Deepest, darkest secrets. When I was still in puberty, I hope this doesn't seem like I'm being defensive or rationalizing, I had fantasies about close relatives. Um, 
to these secrets and thoughts generating particular feelings towards yourself. He writes, self-hatred, the hope that those kind of feelings are genuinely gone and not buried in my subconscious, waiting to cause problems later in life. You sound like a good a good guy, Buzz, who um, is very conscientious towards other people. Perhaps, perhaps um, I don't know if you can be too conscientious towards other people, but very respectful of other people's boundaries and I think definitely too hard on yourself, way too hard on yourself. Um, sound like a good guy. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Alter Boy, A-L-T-E-R-B-O-Y, um, straight in his 40s, was raised in an environment totally chaotic, um, was the victim of sexual abuse, never reported it, deepest, darkest thoughts, that it would be a blessed release for me to die, that my wife and daughter would be better off without me, that although I had a lot to offer the world at one point, I am now trapped in a career I hate, living in, in an area I can't stand and unable to pursue anything that I find fulfilling. I can't tell you how many people feel that same way. Um, I can tell you how many people feel that same way. A lot. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being dominated by a strong woman. Having her lift her skirt up and shove my face into her crotch, which is hot and sweating from the pantyhose she still wears. Having her make me fuck her while wearing... Uh, while a tranny with a big thick cock fucks me and explodes in my ass. Um, by the way, uh, transgendered people don't like being called um, trannies. It's it's kind of um, uh, it's kind of become a, a, a derogatory, very weighted word. Um, and I know you certainly didn't mean it in, in a derogatory uh, way. So I'm not I'm not trying to shame you, but um, yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds like a good good fucking healthy fantasy to me. And the nice thing about having having a woman jam your face into her crotch, no matter how hard she does it, it's a soft landing. There's nothing really created on the planet to cushion better and with more love than a vagina. Oh, if only all head-on collisions could be into a welcoming vagina. I'm going to I'm going to phone the DMV and see what they think about that one. How many how many words in that sentence get out before that call is traced and the FBI <laughs> pulls me out of my house with my shirt off? I think if the FBI ever pulls you out, you got it. Even if your shirt isn't off, you got to take your shirt and shoes off when you see him coming. Just to keep up that stereotype. Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Uh, he writes, no, I can't even get her to let me eat her out. That is a bummer. Who doesn't like to have oral sex performed on them? You know... I the thought just occurred to me is somebody probably did that to her against her will when she was younger and maybe maybe that'd be a, a something to I don't know get her to talk about but um, I don't know how you broach that subject without I don't know what you would say maybe um I don't know. A therapist would probably find a good way for you to 
to bring that that subject up but that that to me just screams um sexual abuse in her in her past or she doesn't wipe her ass ding dong <laughs> i fucking love having my own podcast i fucking love it i love that i can say whatever i want oh hello helicopter it's coming in with the fbi to uh pull me out without my shirt on deepest darkest secrets i am incapable of looking at a woman without searching for one thing about her physically that turns me on and then proceed to create a sexual fantasy about that thing it happens all the time everywhere i think that's pretty normal you know i've shared before that i can be standing behind a woman in line for coffee and just by looking at the back of her neck begin fantasizing about things just based on the way the back of her neck looks like. I think that's just being a human being. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, it makes me feel like a worthless piece of shit, a scumbag, and a vile human being. I don't think you're being hard enough on yourself. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. I want to give you a big hug. Against your will. <laughs> a big, inappropriate loving hug that you don't want this next survey was filled out by I hope you're still with me I'd like to think that this is still uh, I still got your interest however many minutes in this is filled out by a woman calls herself angry elephant I don't like where this is going any woman that calls herself angry elephant um, uh, the dogs are going to bark my wife just came home she's straight she's been celibate celibate for the last 20 years or so um in her 40s there we go all right i'm gonna pause all right they've calmed down um angry elephant um ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts as sexual abuse uh, i feel like i was sexualized by my dad and turned into his companion at one point in my teens more emotional abuse i had to listen to his rants and raves and anger boy do i fucking relate to you deepest darkest thoughts and that wasn't my dad it was it was my mom um deepest darkest thoughts punching my neighbor in the face when he blatantly looks at the warped side of my nose from a botched nose job sexual fantasy is most powerful to you i feel too fat and out of shape to have sex you are never too fat or out of shape to have sex. Let I want that on my tombstone. I want that on my tombstone. And if if I could get somebody to chisel in stone like a picture, it would be a big, fat, out of shape ass just fucking getting it on. Every body deserves to have sex if they want it when i'm feeling when i'm feeling sexual which is rare and totally based on hormones and chemicals i watch free online porn my fantasies are pretty boring does anybody watch pay porn anymore there is so much free porn out there it i suppose if you're into something really specific um that's hard to find you would have to pay for it but um Would you ever consider telling a partner 
your close friend, the printer kind of fucked this one up, having sex and being intimate with someone who I can trust and care about seems like Yeah, God damn you, printer. I can't. It printed like only half of the text, so I can't really see it. Deepest, darkest secrets. My dad always made inappropriate comments. I lived at home for many years because of depression and anxiety. I freaked out when I felt like he made a moaning sound when I was driving with him in a car. It was in response to something I said, and it seemed like a sexual come on towards me. It scared me, and I moved out to finally get away from him and his emotional abuse. In order to see my mom, I've buried it and all the other creepy things. By the way, that to me, if it was that one thing, I would say, oh, maybe you misinterpreted it. But one of the things that I learned to do in dealing with people that I've had a lifelong relationship with is to look at the pattern. The pattern doesn't lie. Um... I pretend they didn't happen. When he is not a weirdo, he is a smart, good man. But when I go back to that place, I hate him, and I cannot believe I still have to have a relationship with him. I hope he dies before my mom because I refuse to take care of him. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, it makes me feel like I create these situations, that it is my fault because I lived at home so long. I felt helpless. And by the way, I don't know if you know how wrong that sounds um it doesn't matter if you live with your parent for the rest of your lives that doesn't give them the right to sexualize you Uh, i felt helpless and then i started to wish he would die it is creepy subtle my mom is passive and i resent her for it whenever i talk about how people treat me to my mom people feel like my feelings are invalidated and i am made to feel like i'm either making it up or i am just being paranoid if I can just interject, get to a support group because you will find a room of people who know exactly how you feel and you will feel validated. Um, she writes, I feel like my feelings um, are being are invalidated. Um, oh, I think I read that. And I'm made to feel like I'm either making it up or I'm just being paranoid. I feel like because of my anxiety problems, I will never be in love or have a healthy relationship. I feel like I will be alone for the rest of my life. I feel like I, if I'm intimate with someone and I enjoy sex, that I am a slut and a bad person. Ever since I quit drinking years and years ago, I've avoided dating and sex. If I meet someone I sex, I'm sexually attracted, attracted to, I get completely wigged out and I run away because I cannot handle my feelings. I feel like I will never have a passionate, loving relationship because I am so shy. I think it is also why I stay fat, because then men are not as attracted to me. This... Again, I am not a therapist, I am not a mental health professional, but this is such classic fear of intimacy because somebody abused your trust. Obviously, your dad. And there is help. This is so common and this is so treatable, but it involves you opening up and talking to people and seeing somebody who can help you, a therapist, a support group, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but when I see somebody whose situation is so similar to mine and I've been able to process it and be at peace with it um, and learn how to be intimate, and being intimate is fucking awesome. It is fucking awesome. Being intimate and vulnerable is just... All right, I'm I'm running my mouth now. 
Um, she also adds, um, I would like to hear someone who has struggled with social social phobia like me. We have, have actually had many people um, be guests on this show who talk about social phobia. Um, Steve Agee uh, talks uh, about it. Um, Eddie Pepitone. A bunch of others, um, some of whom I'm, I'm blanking on right now. Um, my head twitches when sexual words come up if I'm at a group. I have to take a clonopin so I can function in group situations. I have a phobia of words. I was at a lecture once, and the teacher said, hard, and my head twitched involuntarily, um, followed by intense humiliation. I felt so embarrassed. I think out of everything, it is the worst. I become afraid that there are that they are going to say hard, hotel room, bed, body, anything that could be sexual. I get so uptight. I was in this lecture about computers and she kept saying hard drive. I became afraid of her saying hard drive. I held my head the entire class so it wouldn't twitch. It is so ridiculous that I have only told my therapist, sorry, this is so long. Um, well, that's good that you've told your therapist. Um, I think a support group would be awesome for you. And you're not a bad person. You're not a flawed person any more than anybody else. I just think you have been emotionally abused. And don't ever underestimate the effect that that can have on a child when the person who's supposed to be in their care is abusing that trust and the privilege of raising that child. No, I think that's enough. I think that's enough for now. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. As I said, we will be back with new episodes in August. And uh, never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.